This talk was recorded by Insight Meditation South Bay in Mountain View, California. The speaker is Shyla Catherine. For more talks and information, visit www.imsb.org. Well, tonight is the last of the six-part series on Right View. And the title of the talk tonight is The Danger of Fixation, or Right View as the Path. Does anybody remember the poly term for view? I mentioned it in previous talks. DT, yes, thank you, thank you, yes. Usually DT is translated as view. Sometimes we find it translated as understanding or even seeing. It's a term that appears in many of the aspects of the Buddhist teaching. But most basically, or perhaps most importantly, it describes a noble view that is emancipating. And it basically is describing the embodiment of the Four Noble Truths, a full understanding of the First Noble Truth, which is suffering. The Second Noble Truth, which is the origin of suffering, which can be, um, which can be abandoned, that craving can be abandoned, that causes suffering. The third is that the realization of the ending of suffering or the ending of the causes of suffering. And the fourth is a way of being, a cultivation of a path, a way of being that ends suffering. There are various approaches to right view that are described in the Buddhist discourses. And over the past few weeks, I've been discussing several of them, and Lama Surya Das kicked off this series with a presentation on right view as well. But tonight I want to focus on this aspect of right view, which, which understands suffering and considers the dangers of attachment to any view. The Buddha was not concerned with creating a system of belief. He wasn't trying to establish a new religion and present good Buddhist views. His concern was to understand suffering and the causes of suffering so that we can realize the end of suffering. And so his approach and analysis describes the various ways that the mind can become attached and can basically cause problems for itself. Any place there is fixation, there is the danger of suffering. In a discourse in the middle-length discourses called Tuvacha Gota on Fire, the Buddha declares that he does not hold to any particular view. Because at the time, there was a flourishing debate, a philosophical debate among ascetics of various traditions. And they asked questions such as, is the world eternal or not eternal, infinite or not infinite? Does the, what happens to the Buddha after death? 
is the soul one thing and the body another, or are they the same? What you know, these kinds of philosophical questions. And there was a list of different questions, and the Buddha was asked to take a stand on them. And basically, he said that he did not hold that view. And to the next one, he said he did not hold that view. And to each one, he said he did not hold that view. And so he was asked. What danger does Master Gotama see that he does not take up any of these speculative views? And he goes on to say, speculative view that the world is eternal is a thicket of views, a wilderness of views, a contortion of views, a vacillation of views, a fetter of views. It is beset by suffering, by vexation. By despair and by fever, and it does not lead to disenchantment, to dispassion, to cessation, to peace, to direct knowledge, to enlightenment, or to nibbana. And then it goes on, and it repeats the same thing for each of the ten various views that are identified in that discourse. And so then they say, "Well, don't you hold any view at all?" And the Buddha responds by saying. Speculative view is something that he has abandoned. He's done away with. For he says the Tathagata has seen this. Such is form. Such is its origin. Such its disappearance. Such is feeling. Such its origin. Such its disappearance. And it goes through the various aspects of mind and matter, saying. Such is this, such its origin, such its disappearance, and he continues saying. Therefore, I say, with the destruction fading away, cessation, giving up, and relinquishing of all conceivings, all excogitations, all eye-making, mind-making, and the underlying tendency to conceit, the tathagata is liberated through not clinging. So here the Buddha is describing the danger of picking up any view, of holding fast to any position, any philosophical position, and he's avoided the attachment to any view because each one leads to an extreme position. He instead encourages something. He encourages a practice. He encourages looking at the mind and body. To see the conditioned nature of experience, so rather than holding to an idea about it, a view about it, an opinion, he says, "No, turn and look at the mind, look at matter, and see what it is. Have direct insight into the nature of mind and body." Now, there's another discourse that、um, is often read in conjunction with that one, also from the Middle Link discourses, and this is a nice one because、um, it's the mo- it's a it's the discourse where Sariputta, Venerable Sariputta, the one of the Buddha's chief disciples, was enlightened, and the discourse was not given to Sar- Venerable Sariputta. Instead, it was given to a wanderer named Diganaka, who was. The, a cousin of Venerable Sariputta, and probably、um, was a radical skeptic, because when he met the Buddha, he basically said, 
I don't adhere to any view. And he took a strong stance saying that no view was correct. And that was his stance. And the Buddha wasn't very impressed with this. He said to, to, to Diganaka that this was his view. That even though he appeared to be rejecting all views, he had actually taken a view about the incorrectness of all those views and had not seen the danger of fixation to that view. And he said, having the view that no view is acceptable to me leads to clashes and disputes. And where there are disputes, there are quarrels. And when there are quarrels, there is vexation. Foreseeing for himself clashes, disputes, quarrels, and vexations, he abandons that view and does not take up some other view. This is how there comes to be the abandoning of views. This is how there comes to be the relinquishing of views. So he was um, uh, pointing out that um, this um, ascetic had, although he appeared quite to be free from views in, in the sense of not adopting one of those speculative views, he had taken a view, a position, a standing, and so instead of just abandoning those philosophical views, he had not taken the next step of not picking up another one. Then this discourse goes further, and he takes the opportunity to then teach Diganaka further. He teaches him what can actually be known rather than what can be merely believed. And so he follows this reflection on the dangers of views with a very practical teaching, instructing him to look at his conditioned experience as it is right now. And essentially, this boils down to giving mindful attention to the body and to the mind and to feelings. And just to give you a flavor of it, rather than reading all the things about the body and all the things about the mind, I'll just say a few things about the feelings. Because about feelings, he states, feeling is impermanent, conditioned, dependently arisen, subject to destruction, vanishing, fading away, and ceasing. Seeing thus, a well-taught noble disciple becomes disenchanted with pleasant feeling, disenchanted with painful feeling, disenchanted with neither painful nor pleasant feeling. Being disenchanted, he becomes dispassionate. Through dispassion, his mind is liberated. When it is liberated, there comes the knowledge it is liberated. So here we have a very similar approach. First, he identifies the dangers of becoming attached to any particular position, any particular view. And then the response, a wise response, is to investigate what can actually be known of body and mind in order to understand the nature of phenomenon so that we shift out of the concepts, out of the opinions, and instead have a direct understanding, a direct experience of reality.
And this discourse is remembered, of course, because it has a lovely ending when the Buddha continues and says, A bhikkhu whose mind is thus liberated sides with none and disputes with none. He employs the speech currently used in the world without adhering to it. And as Venerable Sariputta was standing beside the Buddha, fanning him, listening to this discourse that he was giving, listening to this teaching that he was giving to Diganaka, he had the experience of freeing his mind from all clinging and becoming liberated. So as Venerable Sariputta was listening to that teaching, he realized awakening. And it's a powerful teaching to consider all the subtle things that we might be attached to. And then sometimes we let go of this view and that view. We know that's not true and that's not true. And we let a lot go. But have we picked up a more spiritual view? Have we taken a stand upon becoming something, someone? The one who is free from views, the one who is enlightened, the great meditator, the spiritual person, the Buddhist. All views. Any position that we take if we adhere to it, it will become our tether and our yoke. It will bind us in suffering. So the challenge is, can we abandon this tendency to become attached, to take a position, to hold to a view, and not pick up another one? A clear perception, contemplation, the analysis of conditioned experience is the essence of insight meditation. And so again and again, the Buddha's instructions are to turn away from the fixation of views, to see the danger of attachment, and then to investigate what is actually happening now. When we're seeing what is really happening now, we're seeing the flow of changing experiences, mind and matter, continuously in change. Where is there to take a stance? What can actually be held on to as a permanent view or perspective when we're actually perceiving the flow of change? Genuine right view is not a belief or an idea. It is an insight. It is a direct experience. And it arises through a profound and empirical look at ordinary experience. It arises through seeing conditioned phenomenon, the body and the mind, not through adopting a belief in the Four Noble Truths, or independent arising, or in anything of the teachings. It's not a theory that can be espoused and believed. It's not something that has to be memorized or enforced. 
right view cannot be reduced to a conceptual understanding because it's not a transcendent experience of an all-powerful reality. And it's not a secret mystical teaching reserved for only the special few. Right view occurs through the most basic practice. It occurs, it arises when we look at our experience as it is right now. We look at the body, we look at the mind, we look at feelings. What do we perceive? What are you noticing right now? Maybe it's sound, maybe you're hearing sound, maybe you're feeling the temperature of the air or the the contact, the hardness or the softness of the floor or the seat. What is your experience? Is that experience permanent or impermanent? Well, surely it's impermanent, right? Because it isn't the same experience you were having two hours ago. And it's not going to be the same experience you're having when you're tucked away in bed tonight. And in fact, right now, it's probably a little different than it was when I asked you the question. So it's impermanent. Is it satisfactory or is it unsatisfactory? Now, by this question, we're basically asking, can our happiness rest upon this? Because often the untrained mind looks for happiness by getting certain experiences, thinking that happiness can be found by getting more pleasant experiences and less unpleasant experiences. So when we recognize the impermanence of things and then contemplate, is this satisfactory or unsatisfactory, we're asking ourselves, is this a reliable basis for our happiness? Well, it's probably not, right? Because it's impermanent. And then the third question that is asked is, if it's unsatisfactory and it's impermanent, is it fit to be called me? I? Can I really say that it's mine? And we realize, no, it's impermanent. It's, it arises due to causes and conditions. It's not under our control. Just because we want that pain to go away doesn't mean it's going to go away. Just because we want it to be hotter or colder or we want to have a different um, uh, mood or emotion, it doesn't mean that it immediately changes the way that we want it to. Our experience arises due to causes and conditions. There is no eternal self that owns and possesses and is master over our experience. And so when we explore right view, we're basically exploring a perspective on phenomenon, the phenomenon of mind and body. What is our view of it? And is it a view that will lead to liberation? Is it a liberating view? The mistake sometimes people make is to want something fulfilling and transcendent, something exciting or consoling, something dramatic in our spiritual lives. Maybe merging in divine bliss or maybe opening to an experience of I don't know what. Who knows what we all want. 
But sometimes we want something that will seem so special. Socially, perhaps we simply want a place to belong, a social network, a group to identify with. And because we want things, we often create views around those things to give ourselves a place to stand. We become, we create, fixation sounds so strong, but it's basically creating a position for ourselves in experience. And this position for ourselves in experience, usually it's this centrality of me, 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 I, me in the center, and we create this sense of me, this position. And we may not feel that we're really attached to it, but that creation is like a fixation in the flow of change. And it obscures the possibility of really seeing the impermanent, unsatisfactory, and empty nature of things. So when we just look honestly at our experience, what do we see? Can we look at the experience of seeing, of hearing, of smelling, of tasting, of touching, of feeling emotions, of recognizing thoughts and memories, plans, and see that that experience is simply conditioned? It arises due to conditions and it creates further conditions. When we can look at our experience, as just that, changing, conditioned experience. It doesn't mean we don't feel anything. It just means we see it without that fixation of picking up the personality view of self or attributing some significance to it or fixing it to be some particular way in the world. Perhaps that direct experience of our own minds and bodies, of just this moment's experience, might be enough to awaken through. And maybe mindfulness can be seen as a simple radical honesty, a right view that is emancipating. It's said that the Buddha was not a metaphysician. He was more like a physician. And his concern was to find a remedy to suffering, to dukkha. He didn't describe why things were the way they were so much. Instead, he was interested in how things are the way that they are, why they, how they happen the way that they do. Can we understand the mechanisms involved? And perhaps more importantly, once we understand the mechanisms of involved, once we understand how things function, then we can deal with it. We can deal with what's arising. Basically, we deal with change. We deal with the impermanence of things, which means aging, illness, and death. When we observe the impermanent, unsatisfactory, and empty nature of things, which may sound like a Buddhist concept, what we're really examining is the mon body and mind as it changes, as it ages, and as it decays. 
And all of that is in the light of knowing that it also dies. The Buddha emphasized that we must know the nature of mind and matter for ourselves through a direct realization, not by adopting a religious view, but through a realization of what can actually be known through seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, and thinking. It's a very pragmatic path. If we hold a view for or against something, either something, an eternalist view or a nihilistic view or an annihilationistic view or a radical skeptic view and all the various views that were debated at the time of the Buddha and are more or less still the views that we hold to this day among most people, then we will be attached to some view. The Buddha described a person who is attached to a view as being like the dog who's attached by a leash to a post. He's kind of trapped there, tied by that leash of attachments. And he also used the simile of the merchant who goes to the marketplace looking for nice things to acquire. And similarly, when we are attached to a view, we are looking for experience to confirm that view. We're seeking what we want through that perspective of our views. We're looking through the lens of what we already believe and desire. There's another discourse where the Buddha, where I'm sorry, where, the, where a wanderer tries to trip up one of the Buddha's great disciples, um, Anattapindika. And Anattapindika was a layman, and he was very bright and had a very strong practice. And he um, um, countered the uh, claims of the other wanderers with the statement, whatever arises is transitory. The transitory is of the nature of suffering. But suffering does not belong to me. That is not I. That is not myself. And so then the wanderers accused him of becoming, of being attached to that view. So it's kind of like what the Buddha did with, um, with, um, Diganaka, except now the wanderers were accusing Anatapindika of being attached to that view. But Anatapindika replied, I have perceived these things in accordance with reality. And besides, I know the escape from this as it really is. He knew the conditioned. He knew the experience of mind and body with insight. He knew the impermanent, unsatisfactory, and empty nature of of mind and matter through his own direct insight. So this was an articulation, not of a view and of an opinion. It was an articulation of his perception, how he saw things. He did not need to construct it into a position to take a stand upon, to cling to as a kind of spiritual belief. But he used it simply 
as an articulation of the investigation that he had done and describing what he had seen and known. Whatever we notice and experience and discover in our lives and in our meditation, at some point we may try to describe it to others. And what will we have to describe it with but conventional language? We'll use concepts. We'll use words. Can we hold those concepts lightly as we describe our insights and our realizations and our knowledge clearly? Clearly with the authority that comes from direct experience without falling into the trap of creating a code of belief or a hierarchy of understanding or turning it into a memory that we become attached with or developing out of it a spiritual identity. Can we describe our spiritual experiences without developing a solid sense of self founded on the experience? I am like this. I had that experience. Or I am this kind of person. Whatever we experience, we can know fully and let go of the story of it, the view, the place where we might take a stand. And then again and again, continue to investigate and contemplate the conditioned nature of our momentary experience. What are you experiencing just now? Is it impermanent? Is it suffering or unsatisfactory? Is it fit to be a basis for self? You might reflect for a moment to consider if you have developed any spiritual views or views about yourself as a spiritual practitioner. Do you have views about your practice? Is it possible to recognize that position-taking tendency, that tendency to become fixated on some stance? See the danger in that. And as you let that go, drop into a wakeful presence with present moment experience. What do you feel in the body? What do you feel in the mind? I'd like to pose a couple of questions and then see if there's some discussion. The first question is, how do you see views affecting your daily perceptions or operating in your own life?
Do you recognize any suffering that arises through attachment to views? What have you learned or discovered or contemplated during this series on right view? Has anything arisen for you that seems particularly interesting? Any comments, questions? Would anybody be willing to share their response to one of these questions? Okay. So the question is, um, if we're in this place where there's no self, what drives, what still motivates decision-making? Well, first of all, no self is not a place. But I recognize that's conventional language. Okay, so you're just try- you're trying to describe this thing that's hard to describe. Um, so um, sometimes we assume that we need defilement to organize our lives, and that without it, we would just do nothing. You know, we'd float around on a kind of a cloud of nibbana, wandering in circles. And that just isn't what happens, because the recognition of things as they are and the not grasping, the not taking a self-position means that we actually see the dynamic relationships of things. It's not that matter disappears and the body vanishes and we have no emotions or thoughts. We still have a body, we still have emotions, we have thoughts, we have energy, and we recognize others have the same. We have social roles, we have duties, we have responsibilities. We have to eat, which means we have to go to work, which means we have a paycheck, so we have to figure out something about banks and economies, and it means we have to pay taxes. So... All those things mean we have to already do a lot of things. And all of that means there's some, there's some pull there. What's doing all that? Why do we inter, why do we try to interact wisely with other people? Why do we try to organize our lives in a way that feels like, um, wholesome and right livelihood and, and is leading down a path that, um, that brings joy and happiness to ourselves and others? And we might think that we need a self-position to do that in. But we really don't. We don't need a self-position. We don't need desire and aversion and anger and hate and greed in order to be motivated in the world. I think what we really need is love and wisdom. And that love and wisdom come when we can look at our experience mindfully, and see what is there and what isn't. And when we see the flow of changing experience, then there's tremendous motivation and a sense of urgency to use the precious time that we have in this life very well because we recognize impermanence. Even when we just see how things are changing moment by moment, we're recognizing the potential, the the inevitability of death. And we use our time very, very well. So um, I'm a, uh, I'm, um, I have a lot of confidence in the power of, of clarity, um, wisdom, clear seeing of experience, mindfulness, and love to 
uh, motivate our actions. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.